The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week's message was a very difficult one. Uh, It's because we had to speak on a very unpleasant subject. And preaching can't always be about our favorite things because there is sin. Sin is a very troubling issue for Christians. And although we are saved by the grace of God, we don't live free from all sin. So we need to be reminded from time to time of the vestiges of indwelling sin and We also must be reminded how God expects us to live, or as this text says that we'll read in just a moment, to walk pleasing to God. We discussed the background of this fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians and the reason that Paul made a plea for personal purity, and we learned that there was a, a very close parallel between the wickedness of our modern society and that of first century, the first century Roman Empire, in which Paul lived and this, these Thessalonians in the church lived. In Romans chapter 1, Paul painted a vivid picture of what life was like in the Roman Empire, in the, in the Gentile culture. He said that they had changed the glory of God into images of creatures, and he said their gods were idols of corrupted men, of birds, and creeping things. And indeed, if you were to visit a city in the Roman Empire, a city like Athens or Rome or Corinth or Thessalonica, you would find their streets were filled with temples of their grotesque gods, of idols. And accompanying that worship of images was the belief that to have a higher spiritual experience with these gods, that a person needed to have a sexual relationship with temple prostitutes. That was the way to the gods. That was the way to experience the euphoria of the gods. And then sex itself became like a god to them. So the spiritual lives of the people that Paul witnessed to were, these lives were intertwined with sexual encounters. So that sex apart from marriage was not unnatural. It was not immoral in their opinion. And many times that that type of perverseness was to be preferred above marriage. The marriage was only necessary for procreation. Chastity was unknown to them, and they tried every conceivable way to pleasure themselves. And so again, in Romans chapter 1, Paul wrote that they dishonored their bodies between themselves. Any type of sex was permissible. That ranged from adultery to homosexuality, even to pedophilia. Nearly everything was a go if it satisfied the sensual appetite. And if you could imagine something, and uh, you could do it, according to them, and probably much more than even decent people or people in our society would consider or even think about. And Paul wrapped all of that together and called all of that vile affections. And he said that women misuse their bodies. He said that men involved in homosexual relationships lusted towards each other. They... they uh, made an unnatural use of the body. And he said because of that, because of this perverseness, the vile affections that, that they had received judgment 
that showed how truly perverse their actions were. And the wickedness was so great that he wrote that God gave them up to a reprobate mind. It's a very serious charge in Scripture. God gave them up to a reprobate mind. It simply means that God turned them loose to do as they pleased, that he would not restrain their evil, he would not bring them to salvation. And this is a warning to to people and societies that it's possible to plunge so deeply into sin and to reject God with determination, with such determination that God will stop all gracious influences. Now, it's not true that every person who lived in the Roman Empire at that time was the worst that they could be, or that most of them or all of them had gone into the worst of perversions. And it's also true that until Paul and other missionaries came and gave them the gospel of Christ, that they'd never heard it before. It's not to say that those who didn't practice these things were in any way virtuous, because the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every person is a sinner against God, and so we're all worse. There is worse than we imagine ourselves to be. There is no good or spiritual thing that's pleasing to God that is in us. Societies that are on the edge of the reprobate mind are those that reject God and the gospel of Christ. And to those that are ready to fall headlong into the pit of hell, we have scriptures just like this. The things that Paul preached, God sent the apostle Paul to these people because among them, among the vilest in that society, there were ones that he wanted to save. Among these people, the vilest of sinners, God saves people out of that wickedness. Now, Paul wasn't at all unfamiliar with Gentile societies. It wasn't as if he ventured into something that he didn't know about. And it's not as if he wasn't sure whether he would encounter opposition of Jewish people against the gospel. Uh, but going to these Gentile cities was, was something that he never imagined that he would do. That is, not when, not when he was lost himself, when he didn't know Christ as the Savior. When he was in his unrighteousness, when he was depending upon his own righteousness to save him, he never imagined that he would go to these kinds of places and he would preach the gospel of Christ. And, and, and the salvation of the Apostle Paul is a miracle, a testament of God's grace to make him a Christian and an Apostle of Christ. And interestingly, after Paul had seen this great wickedness, the perversion of these Gentile cities, he wrote to Timothy with amazing words when he said, I am the chief of sinners. Can you imagine that after all that Paul had seen, a, a culture in which the Jews of his time didn't live, coming from where he came from, men who honored, it seemed, the word of God, that Paul would write, I am the chief of sinners. And the reason he did, because at one time he was the Jews' main man for the persecution of the church of Christ. Now the point of this is that Paul knew that anyone, no matter how wicked they are, no matter how vile a person they may be, that God can save them. If they hear the gospel of Christ, they believe the gospel of Christ, they are capable, they are made capable of living a holy, sanctified life. And so God can take those that are deeply mired in the worst that people can do, and he can save them by his marvelous grace. If you doubt that, you could talk to Jorge, you could talk to Richard, who 
have been down to preach at the prison at Avenal, and there they have met characters that they interact with in their preaching, people that have committed the most vile, despicable, violent crimes that people can commit, and yet God saved some of them. And so as we look at the parallels of first century Roman society to ours, this is what we find, that there are many people that are walking down this very same path, the very same path of the wickedness of that time, and it is a road to destruction. And we've seen that the wickedness of our culture is at the greatest of any time since you and I have been alive, and really in the history of this country. And neither would we imagine that these vile perversions that we see today would be celebrated, that there would be parades to honor them as if this living this way is a virtuous lifestyle. And so our children grow up like Roman children. They know nothing about chastity, about the glory of God. Most of them have never heard of preserving themselves for, for marriage. Or have they heard that homosexuality and transgenderism and transvestism and many of the newly characterized perversions, those are simply not acceptable lifestyles. And so it is with this gross wickedness in mind that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He wrote the letter from Corinth, one of the wickedest of the Gentile cities, and there he was dealing with the church that was tempted and had gone back into much of the perversions of that culture in which they lived. And then he, as he wrote this, he wrote it because he knew that the Thessalonians were tempted to do the very same. That the devil was there working against their hearts to draw them back in to that perverse society. And so this part of the letter was written to encourage them to stay away from the vices of that culture. Because none of those things are compatible with the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. We can't live that way. Well, he'd only begun to teach them. He'd only started to teach them about Christian morality when he was forced to leave. The Christian lifestyle was counter-cultural, especially in those areas where sexual deviance was a part of their spiritual lives at the heathen temples. He wrote the last part of chapter 3, knowing the pressures they faced to return to that lifestyle, one that's pleasing to the flesh. The temptations were great, and so he said to them, I want to come back to you, and I want to perfect the things that are lacking in your faith. And in this fourth chapter, in the very first part of it, he identifies a major problem that they were encountering. Their faith had not yet driven them completely away from sexual perversion. So he said, I want to come to you, and I want to teach you what true love is. True love is to love God and to love your fellow man. True love is that you never take advantage of anyone in any way. And so true love, according to the precepts of God's commandments, that's the only way to live a godly, purified life. It's the only way to godly, personal purity. So we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, how Paul identifies this problem, and he'll go on to tell us how this problem can be solved. How can we live a purified life? He writes in verse number 1, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For we know what commandments, ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. 
that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also, also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. I'd like to emphasize again how monumental this task was of turning Gentile converts to Christ and then bringing them out of the mindset of their culture. Godly living, according to Jesus Christ, was nothing like what they had imagined. Uh, coming to Christ was not what they thought that it was. And the task was simply too great that Paul would think that I can just do this by my personal persuasion. Now, Paul knew you can't persuade people to come to Christ, not in this way. You can't persuade people to turn away from the lifestyles that they've always lived. Now, in order for that to happen, there has to be divine intervention. There must be the call of the Spirit of God upon people to affect the heart, to change that heart, to make it willing to follow Jesus Christ. And we need to remember this ourselves, that as we look at what's going on in our world around us today, that changing the mindset of this culture is not an impossible thing to do, but it is impossible if we're going to try and do that by our persuasion, by anything that we can say to people as if we are able to affect a change in them. We can't convince people to change. They won't change unless they have a heart that's given by God, a heart that follows Christ. The description of the Gentiles in Ephesians 2 gives us a, a, a good description of people today. Uh, he's describing people who lived at that time, but it describes us today. There Paul wrote that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he said you were totally excluded from all the promises that God gave to Israel, that God did not work in you, and without the true and living God, you are without hope in this world. But then he follows in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And so it is Christ who changed you. Now, in our text, in verse number 7, Paul said, God called us. Now, we'll deal with the calling later, but for anyone who imagines that their minds are not so depraved that they could choose to believe at any time, that they could change their minds, they could change their sinful disposition, that they're free to come to God at any time they choose, folks, that is a fool's opinion. You can't do it. It's impossible to do it. People who think this... Don't understand how radical our corruption is. Uh, earlier in chapter 2 in Ephesians, Paul described it as death. He said, you're dead in trespasses and sin. And he couldn't use a stronger word than to say that your condition is spiritual death. And the dead can never change themselves to come to spiritual life. So we do need to see this first. That the only way that we will be changed is not by an act of our will. And it's not by a preacher's clever persuasion. The only way any person is changed is by God's will to change them. Now, let's see if we can break this down into the components of God's plan for personal purity. 
First we see the exhortation for the Christian walk. God is very much concerned about your walk and your Christian life. Now we, we've been over this terminology many times before and you understand that when we use the word walk in this way that this is, is uh, speaking and refers to the Christian life. It's the way that you live your life. These are the things that you do daily. It's the attitude of how you relate to the world considering this faith that you have in Christ. Now the theme of these messages uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians how, is how we should live in consideration with the, of the imminent return of Christ. So this chapter uh, ends with a description of that return. That's what verses 13 through 18 are about. We'll get to those in just a few weeks. And in, in consideration that Christ will return, we must be very concerned about the purity of our lives. What are we doing? How do we live? What's going on now knowing that at any time Christ might appear and that Christ would call his people up to be with him. The way that you walk with God is not immaterial as to what will happen to you once you become a believer. God has no intentions to save you from hell and then let you go about your business as you always have. When you're saved, your business changes. When you become a child of God, your activities reflect on the one who is your spiritual parent, like your own children. And their actions reflect on your parenting skills and on your values. So your actions say something about your God. God didn't save you to walk all over his good character and to give the wrong impression of who he is. Now his purpose of saving you and leaving you in this world is for you to be a testimony of his life-changing grace. This world doesn't know about Christ. You do. You know what Christ is able to do. You know what's happened in your life. And what God intends for you to do is to reach unsaved people who know nothing about the grace of God. And you can't do that if you live a life that doesn't show that you've been changed. You can't go on the way that you are and live the way that you always did and expect that you'll be able to bring people to Christ. And then I would add this, that living for God and walking for Christ is not a natural desire. You weren't born with it any more than the Thessalonians were born with it. And I know there are many of you that didn't grow up in Christian homes and so you never saw this modeled in your home. You never had parents who showed you what Christian living is about. Some of you uh, grew up that way. You just don't know. And so you, you haven't seen the, the model of it. What this takes is spirit-led cultivation. You haven't had that. And in Romans 7, Paul wrote that living for Christ is very difficult because the natural desires of our heart don't stay dormant. As soon as you become a believer in Jesus Christ, that old heart, that old nature in which you always uh, lived in, that old nature that's still in you rises up and it begins to fight against you, to stop you from doing what God wants you to do. It rises up against that new person that you have become. And so it's not uncommon that Christians would struggle with sin. Don't think that something is going on in your life that hasn't happened to somebody else. That the feelings that you have, the thoughts that you have, uh, they shouldn't be there. But don't think that's an unusual thing. Because Paul experienced the same. Paul went through this. He wrote about it. He had his struggles. And if the great apostle said that he struggled, you can be sure you will struggle. 
There's nobody that knew the benefits of serving Christ like the Apostle Paul. And his struggles that he wrote about in Romans 7 were real. There was a battle that raged within him. And I can tell you that he wasn't prone, though, to follow those desires, to chase those desires. He wasn't after the things of the flesh. He wasn't looking for another opportunity for those evil desires to overtake him. But walking with Christ is not automatic. It's learned behavior. It's determined, determined behavior. It's a sanctification process. So Paul knew he couldn't leave these Thessalonians alone. He couldn't leave them without instructions and then expect that they would just go on and do what they're supposed to do. Everything would work out fine whether they're told these things or not. And friends, I want you to understand this is true with you. That you will not overcome the world without support. You will not. And so how does the Holy Spirit support you so you can overcome the world? Well, he uses the word. He uses the, the fellowship of the church. And you're not going to get along fine without the fellowship of the church. And you're not going to get along fine without the instructions that are received from the Word. And this is the very reason that we have weekly services. It's why we're here today and why you hear a sermon just like this one. It's why the people of God come together and, and, and we have a Bible study, for instance, on Wednesday nights. Why do we have that Bible study? Because I know that most of you don't study the Bible at home. And I know that during that time that we're studying over in that room, you're not at home studying the Bible. We know that. So do you. The fellowship of Christians is necessary for the study of the Word. So the consistent message of the Scriptures is that you need the Word of God in your life. And you need the fellowship of God's people. That will help to build your faith. Now in verse number 1, he said, you already know this. He said, I've told you this before. You received the information already. And I would tell you, you've already heard this. How many times have we preached it? You've already heard this. This goes on all the time in the preaching of, uh, from the pulpit. You've heard this. You know about this. And so this is what Paul says to them. You know you ought to walk to please God. So if you know this, walk to please God. How many times do you have to be told? Then further in verse number 2, he said that what he told them was the commandments of the Lord Jesus. That puts the seal on it, doesn't it? When you were saved, your spirit agreed with God's Holy Spirit that Jesus is Lord. You agreed he has the right to command. You agreed that he has the right to expect obedience. And so how is it then you think you have the option whether to obey? Many people, many of God's people, have difficulty with obedience. And it's not as if I'm telling you something that's foreign to your minds. Like Gentiles that never heard this before, some act as if this is new information. This is something new. Or if it's not new, then it must be something that we just take or leave it as we please. Now, a person that is saved has already agreed about this. He has already agreed that Jesus is Lord. Some say there is no requirement of lordship salvation. That's not necessary. But I can tell you upon the authority of God's word, they're not only wrong, they're dangerously wrong. People who don't believe it are so wrong that they're skirting the boundaries of a false gospel. Jesus is Lord. He commands. And you have no option but to obey. And if you can find a scripture that denies that essential obedience, show me. 
and then use that scripture. And if you can't, then why don't you obey? And I want you to notice that he doesn't say that as you walk, you just walk enough to get by. Just walk enough to stretch the limits of what you can get by with and still convince people that you are Christian and still maintain your membership in the church. Just just walk enough, attend enough, be here enough to maintain that membership, but don't be too concerned about how close you get to God. The Bible tells us otherwise. It says we are to grow in these graces, that we should be superlative in our obedience, that we should walk far over to the side of Christ and not near to the gates of hell. Walking with God means to follow closely behind Him. It's not to be so far back that you almost lose sight of the one that you follow. Now, walking with God is to get closer and closer in your holiness. It's to be right up on His heels. Or as, as Peter said, he says it in another way. He says, keep adding virtues to your faith. Keep adding things on. Keep adding these Christian graces. He says that in Second Peter chapter 2. Add virtue to your faith. Keep piling these things on until you excel in them. And that's what Paul says here. The word he uses is to abound. That means to excel. It's to stretch the limits of where human enterprise can take us. It's to go beyond and get out of the comfort zone. Paraphrasing William Carey, that great missionary of the 18th century, he says, because we can expect great things from God, we can attempt great things for God. We can't attempt great things for God if God doesn't do great things because God is the power and sufficiency behind all that we do. So have you thought about this? Do you believe that God can do great things? Then how would you show that? How will you attempt anything great when most people won't even take time to go to a Bible study? How do you do great things for God when you listen to sermons but you don't heed the exhortations from God's Word? How do you do that? If you can't do the simple things, how do you do great things? And thus, we're weak in our dedication to Christ. That's what keeps our church weak. That's what keeps our society weak. We just aren't doing too much for the world. We, we, we aren't doing anything for the world because we're not enough like Christ. And as I say these things, I mean, just, just to be perfectly honest with you, I, I'm not here to chastise you about it. The Apostle Paul didn't chastise these people. Uh, he doesn't say these things be, because he's a taskmaster and he's dealing with, with unwilling, unworthy slaves. This is not his purpose. No, he knew. These are people who have the Holy Spirit in their hearts. If you go back to chapter 1, and and he rehearses that evidence that he had. These are true people of God. So what he knows, there's something to work with. The Holy Spirit is in the heart. So there is something there to work with. And so all that he does here is to encourage that incorruptible seed that is in the believer, in that one who belongs to Jesus Christ, encourages that seed so that people grow up in Christ. So that's all I'm doing for you today. This is all I'm telling you today. Grow up in Christ. Spiritually, be a man or a woman that serves Almighty God. Be filled with the Spirit. And when you are, you will follow instructions. Now, we know that the immediate issue with the Thessalonians was sexual impurity. They were in a decadent culture. The Spirit was there to help them. They were to reject their culture, not to live like it. And so they needed some practical instructions on how they could please 
God. The big hurdle here is personal holiness. It's embodied in this text in the problem of sexual impurity. And when we talk about these things, we just, we just have to be honest about it. And we must say that there is a problem with this in the church. That God's people are leaning in, they're taking in more and more of this godless culture. Our society, and really the church, looks more like a Roman problem. Where we are embroiled in the same issues, and churches have Thessalonian problems. And we're not going to walk with God until this is solved. We won't walk with God until pornography and infidelity and worldly associations and habits are destroyed in us. We will not walk with God until we are sanctified, living for Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at verse number 3, the apostle says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. And my second point is the expression of God's will. For this is the will of God. Now, in one word, that expression is holiness. In one word, that expression is sanctification. Those are identical words. Now, at the top of the list, at least at the top of this list, is the holiness of abstaining from sexual impurity. The impurity is, the word that he uses, is fornication. This is a very broad term. In Scripture, it's a very broad term. It encompasses any type of sexual impropriety. It means impure acts that you do in your body. It's the thoughts in your mind. It's the motives by which you act. And I think it's interesting what Paul said about the mind in Romans 7. What's going on in your mind as a Christian? Well, he says in Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Now, Paul considered himself to be a good Jew. Outwardly, at least, he did all the works that he obeyed the law. Now, before he was saved, he's, he wasn't a man that you would find uh, carousing at night. You wouldn't go out and find Paul hanging out in bars. Um, he didn't have mistresses. The Romans that he wrote to had these things, but he was a good Jew. And the Jews that he wrote to in, in, in Rome, at the Church of Rome, when he wrote that first chapter, uh, they considered themselves to be good Jews. But notice the sin that he chose to use as his example. Now, he could have chosen any sin that's in the Ten Commandments, but not all of them were useful for this point. And the one that he chose to elaborate on is the sin of coveting. There's a reason that Paul did that. Stealing, he could have used that. That's in the commandments, isn't it? Thou shalt not steal. He could have used that. But stealing is an outward sin. And he said, don't commit adultery. Use that uh, as well. Uh, adultery has uh, an inward and outward component. You sin against your body and against others. He could have gone back earlier in the commandments. He said, thou shalt not curse. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. He could have said that, could have used that sin. People do that sin, but cursing is a sin that is against the Lord, an outward sin that people do. But coveting, coveting is a very different sin. He chooses this one because coveting is something that affects only you. Coveting is a sin of the mind. There is nobody else that's involved in coveting 
It doesn't affect people outwardly. In fact, for it to be a sin that affects outwardly, it has to turn to something else. It has to turn into a desire to steal from someone and then act on that desire. It turns into the desire to commit adultery. But coveting, the sin itself, is something that takes place in your mind. And the point here is that God is as much concerned with the sins of the mind as he is the sins of the body. What you think inwardly is as much a sin as what you do outwardly. Now, others don't see it because your outward sins, they can see. But because people can see that outwardly and don't see what's inward, doesn't mean that you have escaped the omniscience of God. God sees all sin. He knows everything you think as well as you do. And so there are many who fool themselves into thinking, Oh, I'm fine. I'm not that, I'm not that guy that goes out at night. I'm at home at night. I am at home at night. I don't go looking for a good time in worldly places. And I say, that's great. You ought not to. Don't do it outwardly. Don't, don't, don't be a bad testimony for Jesus Christ. But don't think that God is satisfied until you have the mind of Christ. God is not satisfied until your thought life is also sanctified. And when I say this, I don't say it as somebody who has absolute control of everything that I think. I don't have any more control of it than Paul did. Paul had difficulty taking full control of his thought life. But I say it to you, just as the apostle did, that this is a struggle. It's a hard thing. It's a very difficult thing to bring every thought that we think under the obedience of Christ. And so he uses coveting here as the example because he's telling us, take control of your thoughts. And your thoughts must be as much conformed to Christ as your actions. To be conformed to God's will. To be sanctified. The will of God is to be sanctified. You've got to do both. Not just what you do outwardly, but what you think inwardly. Now, he says it's God's will that you abstain from fornication. And he brought up the sin of coveting. Now, that's going to tell us that you can commit the sin of fornication in your mind. Isn't this what Jesus said? He said this very thing. What, what you think in your mind is also sin. And you can commit that sin of fornication. Every act that we think, everything that we think of, rather, every thought that we think that is not under the obedience of Christ is an unholy thing. And, and it's perversion. Perversion of sex. Anything outside of marriage is sin. God says only the marriage bed undefiled will answer his demands in a way that glorify him. But we are bombarded with it all the time, aren't we? Sins of the mind. In verse number 4, he said that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. You must possess your vessel. Well, several weeks ago, in our men's Bible study class, we talked a little bit about how far that we should go in our discussions about and how far we should go down the rabbit trails that lead us away from the true meaning of the text. Many times people have a wrong interpretation of the text, but that wrong interpretation might not be a harmful one, but it's not really the intent of the author. And I think it's important that sometimes we do that, that we look at wrong interpretations and why they're wrong. And this is one of those texts where, where I think it's good that I tell you what it doesn't mean. 
a popular interpretation by some who are otherwise good interpreters, and you may read this in some of your commentaries, they will say that this word vessel means the wife. Possess your wife in sanctification and honor. Now, why would they say that? Well, because the Thessalonians, they should use their wives honorably and for the purpose that God intended. Now, Paul said, may have said it because of this. You remember that quote I gave you from the Greek orator Demosthenes last week, who said, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for day-to-day needs of the body, we keep wives for the begetting of children and for the guardianship of our homes. So if Paul means vessel means wife, or that's what he's saying, then Paul is saying, use your wife as God intended. That sexual desires can't be divvied up into all these multiple objects of desire, but you are to stick to your wife. Stick to the wife of your youth, as you would read in the Old Testament. Stick to her and treat her honorably. That's not a harmful interpretation. It's a good one, except it's just not the right one. What he means here is not the wife, but the vessel that he refers to is your body. That you are to know how to use your body. You are to have control of your body, and you are to use it only in ways that are pleasing to the Lord. As a side note... It means also that a woman doesn't have the right to choose to abort a baby by saying, oh, it's my body, and I have the right to do with my body as I please. No, that's a dishonorable use of the body. That can't be a Christian response to human life. And if that woman who says it is not a Christian, then I also say that is not a creational response to human life. It's not creational. All life is sacred to God, and only God has the right to give it and to take it away. And so, if God gives us a right to take life away, it better be in a way that's pleasing to Him. Otherwise, you better stay away from killing babies. Until you can say that it's God's will to abort babies, then we better not be aborting babies. But 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 isn't that so much like the Roman society? Because they were used to this kind of thing. They were child killers. They kept a child or they killed a child as it pleased them. What is that? Well, that's a mark of a decadent, deeply immoral society. That is a regressive society, not a progressive one. That's not progressing in love as the Word of God would have us to. Now, returning to the original thought, God's will is that you refrain from sexual immorality. Look very closely at the text. He said, the will of God. Now, in this sense, the will of God is the sovereign plan that God has for your life. And His sovereign plan is for your purity. Our will is not purity. And so we willfully go against God's plan for purity. Now, we read in Ephesians 2 verse 3 that our will is to fulfill the desires of the flesh. It is our will to fulfill the desires of our mind. It's what our mind wills. It's what our body wants. In Romans 8, Paul goes on to talk about the carnal mind, the fleshly mind. He says it's not subject to the law of God. God's law for man is God's will for man. But the desire for sex isn't wrong. Sex is a gift from God. Sex is wrong when the desire is self-centered and that desire takes advantage of others. When a young man entices a young lady for sex or vice versa, he or she will say something like this. Oh, baby, let's do this. Uh, I love you so much. I want to do this because I want to show I love you. 
You just run that through the lust translator, and it comes out this way. I want to do this because I love me. This will satisfy me. This will calm that burning desire I have at this very moment, and it has nothing to do with your purity or what's good for you. It's God's will that you abstain from fornication. How do we know? Because it's all about the treatment of your fellow man. How we are to treat one another is not defined by me, not defined by my ideals or you. God defines it. He defines it in the commandments. And so in the seventh commandment, God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now I know that the King James uses the word adultery in that text, but almost everyone agrees that it's the same word that Paul uses in, in 1 Thessalonians, this same word fornication, it's very broad, and it includes all forms of sexual impropriety. What are the commandments? Well, they are the expression of God's character. And so when God says, thou shalt not, it's because God would not. When God says, thou shalt not, it's because Jesus would not. Paul said in verse number 2, it's Christ's commandments. It's the Lord Jesus' commandments. Christ would not and did not act in that way. He commanded against it. Well, now we've got to think, why wouldn't he do it? Why did he command against it? Because he came into the world for the good of mankind. He acted only in ways that were for the good of mankind. He commanded things that are only good for mankind. And so if it's not good for mankind, he wouldn't do it. And if you do it, neither is it good for mankind. Fornication is not for the good of mankind. How do I know? Broken homes, broken families, disease, financial ruin. That's just the beginning of the devastation of fornication. Oh, but we know a sexual free society covers up much of that. Broken homes? No, we're not going to admit to that. Broken families? No, not at all. Diseases? No, that's caused by something else. They act as if no one is harmed. It's not immoral. Sexual promiscuity, especially homosexuality, to take an example, to say that doesn't really harm anybody. But what do honest psychologists say? What do statistics say? Homosexuality is not a fulfilling lifestyle. It's not. Transgenderism is not a fulfilling lifestyle. There's much evidence to the contrary of the mental torture that these decisions have. How do I know that? I don't need outside sources. I don't need anybody to give me statistics on it because God's word says it is against God and thus it's not for the good of mankind. Now, in many cases, young children that are too young to make rational decisions, decisions are given hormones because they're progressive. Moms and dads want to be on the cutting edge of progressive thinking. And so what do they do? They care more about the statement they make than the child's life. And so they ruin children. And they, and they leave them with mental scars, if not physical scars, by those decisions. We know it's not for the good of mankind because God did not create us that way. God created. He looked at his creation and he said, it's all good. Everything that I've created is good. So anything that is outside of the way that God created us is not good. God created man to take charge of the world, to subdue it. He created us to procreate, to populate, and to subdue the world. But instead... People are enslaved to immorality, and they will not prosper unless they are content to serve God. 
God's will is always for our good. Nothing that God commands is harmful. Everything that he doesn't command, that he didn't set in order, is harmful. God does not harm man because the Bible says he so loved the world. He loves people. And so he'll never tell us to live in a way that is harmful. The only ones who want to live in a harmful way are sinful, perverse people that encourage you to disobey God's will. And sadly, there are just too many that are willing to harm themselves. Now in this text, there are three ways that we're taught to abstain from fornication. I'm sorry, I'm already past time. So I can't explain to you what those three ways are. We're going to look at this though. We're going to continue on this subject because this is an important one. The good of the church, the success of the gospel, your success as a believer is dependent upon what you take from this text and how you apply it to your personal life. So we'll take our time. Next week we'll come back to it and we're going to talk about God's plan for personal purity and a way that you can live a pure life. We are going to see God's instructions and how to implement God's plan. So you stay tuned. But until then, in this next week, what you need to do is ask God to clean up your actions and clean up your mind. You have to ask God because you won't do it by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. You must plead for the power of the Holy Spirit to work in you. And I hope that you will because it's for your good. And it's for the good of mankind. And it's for the good of Christ's church. Abstain from fornication. All these acts that Paul says, writes about, that are not good for mankind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for your word, thanking you, Lord, for the truth that we learn here. And I ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to this and help us to understand it better, to receive it, accept it, and to work on it through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we very, very carefully observe what we do with our minds. Be very careful to inject ourselves with the Word of God, not the ways of the world. Father, we ask for your people to be sanctified, holy, to live holy lives. And that will be the power of the church as the Holy Spirit works in us. Bless us this day. We thank you for the season. We thank you for this time knowing that Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.